So, uh, kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. I'd like to welcome you all here, uh, particularly uh, Dr. Michael Hempel, uh, for our session today on restorative practice pedagogies. I'll call it, and Michael will inform us what, what is the best term to use. Uh, having done the readings on this, uh, there are a number of different terms in the literature that would be good if he, uh, I'm sure he will define for us. So, um, as I typically do, I ask, uh, what's the weather like where you are, Michael? And this is a little ironic today, but let's share it with everybody and people listening to this in different parts of the world might be interested. Yeah, it's a lovely day for March in North Carolina, um, but metaphorically, it's a little bit cloudy because we're uh, worried about communities with the real epidemic that we're experiencing. Right. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of that. Um, so, uh, and then the tradition I usually have in this class is uh, in our critical pedagogy class, I, I tell and inform people where I first met the person who's presenting. And uh, very fortunately, I met Michael in 2011 in a place called Limerick Island at the ICEP conference. And uh, I think we're having a beer. Yeah, certainly, yeah. <laughs> Great time. Yeah, it, it was an outstanding conference. Outstanding conference, yeah. great organization, and they did a great job with it. Thank yeah. you, Limerick and the University of Limerick. Yeah. Mary Sullivan and Anne McPhail, etc. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we'll, how about we start? <laughs> so, uh, Michael, without further ado. Cool. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And Thank you for coming. Be amongst friends today. Um, so I've been at UNCG since 2016, and uh, I was lucky to, I had actually done work in New Zealand, where, uh, where Ben's from, and uh, initially with some kind of study abroad programs, um, but I stumbled upon restorative justice there. Uh, New Zealand has a rich history and culture around restorative justice, and so when I stumbled upon it, it the values of it were just broadly consistent with the things I was interested in. And so um, when I came to UNCG, I found opportunities to go study restorative justice in New Zealand. And so a lot of my ideas have kind of grown out of um, observing schools there that they call, they call them restorative schools. Uh, it's been a really cool journey. I've been able to partner with colleagues in peace and conflict studies, which opens my eyes up to a bunch of new disciplinary perspectives. Um, so I'm gonna talk about that a little bit today, try to keep it uh, relatively brief, hopefully under 25 minutes or so, so there's time for questions, like to mix it up in that way as well. Um, and I will use a little bit different terminology, we'll try to uh, define that a little bit up front, but um, oftentimes when you hear restorative justice, uh, someone might be talking about a system of justice like a criminal justice system or a youth justice system and you might hear restorative practices when someone's referring to some of those values being generalized to a community setting or a school setting um, although some people are very intentional about re referring to school practices as restorative justice so it's somewhat kind of contested terrain but that's that's in general um for this slide and um so just the outline, I'm going to try to put a little bit of a broad definition around this, talk about what um, restorative pedagogy means, what that might look like, and then share a little bit about what the research is saying and my related field experiences, and then conclude that with, with time for discussion amongst us. Cool. Um, 
so I'm going to talk about what restorative justice is and is not to kind of frame the conversation. And so I would first say restorative is not new. Um, it has new momentum. It has new applications. Um, there's new ideas behind it, but it's not new in and of itself. Um, it is not an elimination of punishment. You know, restorative does not aim to eliminate the idea of punishment. Um, it might suggest processes to reach punishment, however. Um, and then finally, it's not a uniform pedagogical practice. Uh, I've learned to appreciate that. It, it might look quite differently how people take on these ideas and apply them in, in schools. And so context is very important. So those are some things I, I want to say. This is not what restorative is, but what is it? Um, restorative is rooted in indigenous cultures, and I would acknowledge um, roots in uh, Maori traditions, Native American traditions, First Nation traditions uh, in Canada, um, Aborig Aborigines cultures in Australia, among others that, that kind of offer these practices from their communities, and we've given new life to them to think about our own institutions. Um, restorative is a set of interrelated values and practices. And so I've appreciated that because oftentimes if the, the values aren't there, the practices might not work as well either. And so those, those things are interrelated. Restorative is a humanistic and relational approach to being together in communities. And if there's one thing that jumps out, that's probably it to me. It's, it's an approach to how are we gonna be when we're together in communities, whether that's a school community, a, you know, a neighborhood-based community or what have you. And then finally, restorative is a fundamental challenge to contemporary systems of justice, right? I mentioned criminal justice systems, youth justice systems, but also think about schools as systems of justice. Um, so think about justice as social justice, you know, for example, so restorative presents a fundamental challenge to those systems. And I'll try to give an example to help us think about that uh, in a moment. One of the things that restorative offers us in terms of kind of social emotional learning frameworks is that it explicitly says that um, conflict is a natural and normal part of relationships and it's not to be avoided, um, it's going to happen. And so conflict leads to harm in relationships. So harm is negative. And so conflict could be an opportunity to strengthen relationships when handled effectively, to prevent harm or address harm that is caused when conflict emerges. I mentioned colleagues in peace and conflict studies have been helpful for me to think about this, and generally speaking, um, they might outline three approaches to conflict, the first of which being a mediation approach. And so think of mediation as a third party uh, joining to settle a dispute, you know, to kind of put that fire out when it happens. They might also think about conflict resolution. Maybe that goes a little bit deeper than uh, mediation and says, you know, what's the root cause of this problem and how can we sort that out to kind of resolve, resolve this issue? And, and move on. And then finally, um, the, you might think about a transformation approach. Um, and a transformation approach focuses on exploring the role or process of conflict, not just the outcomes of conflict, the process of conflict in a way that can deepen relationships, make them more resilient, and restore relationships. So that's a key piece of restorative 
um, practices. So conflict transformation processes goes beyond just solving the conflict to the satisfaction of all parties. It's not just putting the fire out, right? It's thinking about why did the fire start in the first place? How can we prevent future fires from breaking out? And then when we do get the fire put out and address these kind of future fires developing, um, how can we focus on rebuilding the community in a way that might look differently than the community that existed when the conflict emerged, right? So it, it can be strengthened, perhaps have a stronger foundation, so to speak. Um, so I think of restorative practice as a conflict transformation approach to transform relationships. Um, I'm gonna try to see if I can lay out a, an example briefly. Um, restorative practices presents this fundamental challenge I mentioned to punitive systems of justice. Um, and so I'm aware of a situation I'll use as an example that happened in a secondary school and um, some students had a substitute teacher um, and this substitute teacher was just, they thought she was quite mean. They did not like her um, and they did not want to have her as a substitute teacher. And they uh, worked together to, um, to bring in a substance and place it in her coffee because they were aware that she drank coffee every day. Um, there was a group of students who coordinated this effort so they could do it and would not get caught. Um, they did in fact bring in a substance, put it in the teacher's coffee and it did make that teacher ill um, and caused harm to her. Now, how, does the, how should the justice system be in schools deal with that situation? Um, the punitive approach that followed uh, clearly said, you know, this is against the rules. This is not right. Um, something has to happen. And we have to establish guilt among the parties. So who was the person who put the substance in the drink? Who's guilty of that? But who's also guilty of, you know, being a lookout type thing to um, help that person get away with it? Who was guilty of kind of knowing and not saying something? So who's guilty at, at different levels? accountability was punishment. How can we punish these people? Um, there was a 10-day suspension for the main culprit. There was a in-school suspension for people who served in different roles as kind of lookouts to make it happen. But all those processes focus on the, the offender, the who did it, right? Who carried out this act that caused harm to this teacher? It ended with those consequences, the, the suspensions, in school and out of school suspensions. Um, and because it was a substitute teacher, she, uh, she decided she did not want to teach in that school any longer. Um, so there was no opportunity to make amends or try to make right what happened. It ended with those consequences. And so that's a punitive system of, of justice. And so if we think about that in a restorative system of justice, what might that look like? Um, in theory, at least, um, you would think about that teacher being harmed as a harm to relationships. So primarily between that teacher and the students, but also the relationships between teachers and students in that entire school were harmed. Um, no teacher is ever going to approach their drink the same way after that incident, incident in the school, right? So a lot of uh, relationships were harmed. Perhaps relationships between the students were harmed as well as individuals ended up in trouble and different things like that. And so that, that framework is a way of thinking about it. It's not that the rules were violated. Relationships were harmed 
And so the justice process focuses on identifying needs of those people who were impacted. Certainly, primarily this teacher who has been harmed by having a substance added to her drink, but there may be other harms that came out of that situation as well. As well. So an accountability process, instead of focusing solely on punishment, focuses on understanding the harm and then repairing it. Punishment may well be an important part of that process. Okay, so it's not to eliminate punishment, but to say, let's focus on understanding what happened, why did this happen, how do we make this right? In that process, a role and a voice is given to various parties, including the offenders, the victims, and community members or representatives, per se, in kind of a conferencing process. In the end, the goal is to kind of to make it right and kind of heal that process. And so when those students came back from suspension or some type of punishment, there's an opportunity to try to make amends and try to uh, make the harm right that they cause and say, you can become a member of this community once more, right? So that's a very brief case study for, for conversation of how this might look differently. And you might think about this differently as a process, you know, who's included and how do we think about what's happened? to imagine how does this, what, was this, what does this look like in schools? Um, you might see a, a three-tiered approach. Um, and the, the bottom tier, if you think of this as a triangle, would be a holistic across the whole school approach that says let's teach relationship skills and social emotional learning uh, integrated across the whole school. So this might be, you know, posters in the hallway, uh, things you might do at school assemblies to lift up relationships and social emotional learning. It might be um, the way you onboard teachers, making sure that they know your values of the school and that we want to perform in a restorative manner, how you communicate with parents. So a whole school embrace of restorative practice at that level one, right? And then level two gets a little bit more targeted, proactive, and intentional that focuses on nurturing relationships and repairing relationships as, as needed. So sometimes there's harms to relationships that take place that we might not identify as a, um, you know, like the example I just gave, uh, a, you know, a serious type of situation, but they're just kind of minor issues that need to be sorted out in classrooms. So a part of that is let's acknowledge some of the challenges to relationships and talk about those routinely, create spaces to talk about those in class. I often think about this in sports and there can be minor conflicts or frustrations. You know, you, you didn't seem to practice hard today or you, you screwed something up. Um, you know, I don't, don't hate you for it, but it's just a frustration that we need space to talk about and embrace. Um, I'll talk about some practices for doing that um, forthcoming in the presentation. But at the kind of pointed end of the triangle would be tier three, which is um, restoring relationships through an intensive process. So that example I just gave of this, this group of students who harmed a teacher, um, that would be a tier three issue. That's an intensive process. It requires people, administrators, who are trained extensively in restorative practices to involve all these different parties in reaching a restorative resolution. 
when I did work in New Zealand, one of the things that I learned is most of the work in a restorative school happens at the bottom of the bottom levels of the triangle, right? Because you learn how to prevent issues to relationships from reaching that third tier. Um, but when you do get there, it becomes quite intensive. So with that backdrop, and, and I know that's a lot to, to put out there in, in 10 minutes or so, but with that backdrop, um, I'm going to talk about some of the pedagogical practices whereby teachers might implement this in, um, in schools. And I've tried to uh, do some of this practice in my own work, so I may refer back to that. So restorative practice pedagogy, the most um, foundational practice that you'll see with restorative is the circle process. Um, it can be used in a number of ways, um, but generally speaking, it, it is a circle um, where students are seated in a circle with adults and there's a mechanism to facilitate conversation. Oftentimes there's a, a centerpiece in place as kind of a ritual so that students have a focal point, um, perhaps if they're not comfortable making eye contact given the conversation, and there be, may be a talking piece. So the talking piece also will regulate conversation. It, it can move around the circle uh, from student to student to define who has the right to talk. And that might have a way of balancing the conversation. So restorative circles uh, are generally defined by a set of values. And some authors will describe them differently, but I've embraced, I, I think it was Kay Prentice who writes about four values being um, uh, respect for all persons in a circle. All voices matter in a circle. So we're going to listen to everyone. We want everyone to be heard. The idea is that silence is a voice, which I, I found I've grown to appreciate in my practice, and then a balance of power in a circle process. So that's kind of universal values. And then what um, is recommended sometimes is to develop norms and norms are uh, almost like rules, but you're trying to create this context in a circle where it's not a rigid rule following situation. And so we use different language and refer to it as norms. My students, uh, we adopted the following in circles that we do at a high school, ninth grade students um, say just enough, which acknowledges that we might not have enough time to elaborate on everything all the time. So say just enough, there's gonna be other opportunities to talk. Be present in the circle, you know, engage and listen. Um, listen from the heart and speak from the heart. Okay, and those values are something that we remind ourselves of. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally you might hear someone, um, there was a comment that we had last semester where a person from one race shared her perspective about another race and it didn't come off as um, as culturally competent perhaps and so that idea of listen from the heart is important there. that she's trying to share how she felt in that moment and she meant no harm by that right so we got to listen to that from that empathetic perspective you will find with um, circles or I have found, and I think it's important that there's a progression of participation in circles. So I think circles should be implemented routinely to create a, a safe space for conversations, right? They cannot be employed only when a need arises. Um, so the way I tend to use them is if you think about, even in this room, whoever's listening to this right now, um, if we sat in a circle and I asked you a question like, tell me what your biggest fears are. 
um, we don't have the relationship established to have that conversation. Um, if I were to ask you any number of personal questions, we just don't have that relationship yet. So you have to start with the, the relationship building pieces. Um, with ninth grade students, we often talk about you know, favorite things, favorite colors, favorite food, favorite whatever. Um, but then a week or two later, we're talking about, you know, what's, what are your hope, hopes and dreams? Um, and a week or two after that, we're talking about some of those more difficult conversations. And then finally, when a situation arises, you may have created a safe space that you need in your classroom. I was a part of a situation where unfortunately a student had passed away. Um, and the circle was this place that was established where people could come and share how that impacted them. Yeah, you know, we couldn't have that conversation without that progression. So that's one important piece of, of a, a circle. Um, there's different types of circles. Um, I'm not going to mention but a couple here, but you could categorize them as proactive or reactive. Um, so you could think about proactive circles like, hey, let's talk about the types of conflicts that we're experiencing in this school and how would we deal with them? How would we face them when we come across them um, proactively? So there's no, no harm caused, but let's think about how do we prevent that. Um, a reactive circle could be in response to um, a situation that's happening. We often see in schools issues of bullying taking place. Circles can be a really good um, place for that. We held a reactive circle with a program I work with around um, group work. We had just split the, group, the class in half, of 10 people on either side, and they had just an activity for 10 minutes um, to work on. And one student got left out, and it was nobody's fault, really. It was one of these things where he's a very shy, introverted student in a group with some extroverted students. And I don't think they noticed but this student has been excluded for 10 minutes and never brought into the conversation. And so we had a circle around, you know, what does it mean to include everyone? And what if it's not easy to include everyone all the time? You know, what are our responsibilities as people who are leaders of groups to make sure people are included? And how can we, if we're that person who's feeling left out, what, what can we do to try to um, make our voice heard in that? And so that's a type of reactive circle. It doesn't always have to be about um, a major conflict happening with restorative practice. It can apply to situations we see every day in, in schools. And so I'll just mention those two for now. Um, just briefly here, gonna mention some other restorative pedagogies. The circle is foundational, at least in my mind, but um, a couple of other concepts you might see. Um, there's a restorative script. Um, so asking students questions based on uh, an instance that has happened and that can be summarized as, you know, what happened and why, what harm was caused, how can we make it right? And so that script has a way of zeroing in on a reflective process to help students deal with things that are occurring. Um, there's a, a fair process situation that suggests that if there are decisions that impact students or for that matter adults, in a school, um, they should be engaged in the process of decision-making, okay? It doesn't mean that the leader has to give up authority for making a decision. It means they include voices in that process. And so generally speaking, that might include engaging with the people who are impacted, you know, figure out how, they, how do they feel about it, 
what input might they have, okay? Explain the decision that's been made. Yeah, even if it's not a popular decision, give an explanation, here's the decision. And then expectation clarity, reinforce what the expectations are given that decision. Okay, so um, restorative practices doesn't have to be about giving authority over. I think some people get that impression at times, so I, I, I'm emphasizing that. Um, so those are a couple of restorative pedagogies that we can engage further on in the conversation. Um, so I'm gonna mention a little bit about what I'm seeing in the research. Um, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading. It seems like I'm finding new, exciting things to read all the time on this topic. And then I'm involved with some field-based research. And so I've been fortunate to spend usually two days a week in public schools doing restorative practices with students. And um, there's just no better way for me to learn than to be really proximal to what's happening in, in schools. I'm gonna talk about what I'm seeing as pitfalls in the literature, it's a broad summary. Uh, but there's a lot of evidence of cursory implementation of restorative practice. And so what that, the takeaway I want to, us to all have from that is, if you see a research study or hear somebody tell you, you know, I did restorative and it didn't work, um, or I did restorative and it was awesome, um, ask some questions about the implementation process. You know, let's make sure that there was some fidelity to what this actually means and what this actually looks like in practice. Some of that cursory implementation may be driven by external forces that um, require schools to make changes that they may not be ready for. Some examples in the literature come from um, some consent decrees that were issued during the Obama administration with school districts whose discipline procedures were racially unjust. And so those school districts had to make an agreement with the federal government to change those unjust practices. Several of them said, you know, we're gonna do restorative justice to try to fix this situation. Um, some of them seem to have done it with great promise, and there's other examples where um, perhaps they eliminate disciplinary procedures without implementing the relationship building procedures, right? And so that, that can be problematic. Um, when we, you do restorative practices, there's a difficult buy-in process when you think about holistic across the school implementation. You can probably pick up from my conversation that there's just certain teachers who might feel like this isn't best for them based on the experiences that they have had and based on the content that they're expected to teach and the expectations before them, right? So there's a difficult buy-in process that has to be considered for a holistic school implementation. There is also, when implemented, a disconnect between restorative practices for students and restorative practice for the adult participants. And that speaks to the values part a little bit, right? So it's like, we're going to do this practice with the students, but what about how we relate to one another as adults, how we hold ourselves accountable, and how we deal with the harms that are occurring within the school from an adult perspective? So those are some of the pitfalls that we're seeing. That's not an uh, exhaustive list necessarily, but what about some of the promises in the research? So there is clearly some promise for reducing racial inequity in school suspension through restorative justice practice. Um, kind of closing that gap. In some spaces, that gap is surprise. It's just alarming. Um, 
the school district that I live and work in reported, I think it was 4.2% African-Americans were more likely to be suspended than white students, right? So how do we close that gap? So there is some promise restorative justice can reduce that, not eliminate, but reduce that gap, improve upon the situation. There is evidence of system-wide implementation in international context. And uh, a glowing example is New Zealand. They have a model called Positive Behavior for Learning, Restorative Practices, which is implemented in over 200 schools. And those 200 schools have met certain benchmarks um, such that they're referred to by the country as restorative schools, that it's reflected across the, the, the school. And so that, that's promising that systems could consider and adopt um, these the strategies. There's some evidence for developing social emotional learning competencies in all five of the domains of social emotional learning. Um, and then my uh, work has thought about physical education as an implementation pathway, which I'll talk about in my conclusion, but that's emerging as an opportunity to do this, this work in a very intentional way. So finally, a couple points. Um, when implemented effectively, relationships become stronger with restorative practice. And I'm speaking to what the literature is suggesting. When that implementation is there, the relationships are improving. There's also evidence of reduced bullying, including cyberbullying, right? Cyberbullying seems to be an issue that some restorative schools are trying to get a handle on because it's a space that we don't necessarily see what's happening. You know, we're not in the student's social networks. So the bullying issues can escalate quite a bit um, before school officials are aware of them. So let me, um, a couple minutes in, in finishing up and talk a little bit about what we do in physical education. The, the research that I've, I've done suggests that if you return to that triangle model where there's three levels, that physical education in sports might embrace that level one of restorative practices when the school chooses to embrace restorative, right? So if the school's doing it all across the school, physical education seems to be saying, you know, we're gonna kinda focus on teaching social and emotional skills, we're gonna try to build relationships, but we might not go so far as that second level where we might do circle processes or other restorative intentional strategies integrated in our pedagogy. And so it's at level one, but not quite two or three in physical education thus far. However, in North Carolina, in many other states, if not every other state in the United States, physical education and health is the only subject area in secondary schools that prioritizes teaching conflict resolution skills. And so, if you think about classroom teachers who are being asked to integrate restorative practice, a lot of the literature reports them saying, look, I would love to do more of this work, but I, you know, I have to do, I have to teach my content. It's very difficult for me to take on this new approach and layer it on top of that. And so what I've suggested is the status that physical education holds in schools provides an opportunity to make restorative practice the focus of the curriculum. It's not something we want to integrate across or just kind of have as an add-on. It can be the focus of what we are doing. Um, an example of that in my practice, uh, I have a 90-minute physical education class twice a week. There have been times where we sat in a circle for 40 minutes. Um, 
because that's the focus of the physical education program. Certainly we, we do physical activity as well, we get to that. But if this wasn't a content standard, there's no way I could say physical educators should be sitting in a circle focusing on life skills for that period of time. But so let's rethink what standards mean and how do we lift up standards such as conflict resolution through restorative practice. So I've uh, published an, uh, a model called restorative youth sports and the three components are generally here. This is what we use in our physical education program at a, a local ninth grade with a class in ninth grade. Um, the first is that uh, first level of the triangle is just essential things that we should be doing to be restorative. Um, trying to be relational across our programs, a commitment to re uh, reflective practice lifting up diversity and inclusion and we really like to think about transfer of learning that's inspired by the hellison tpsr model that idea of transfer outside the gym we we call awareness circles a process that we use at the beginning and end of every physical education class that we run we open and close with an awareness circle where we talk about a range of topics um, we might set expectations for the class in that circle certainly we model respect for one another every student is given a voice in that circle every time without exception we have shared decision making processes and intentional activities that would help us build relationships. The final piece is this idea of a team, a team meeting, and this this kind of mimics a restorative conferencing model. Um, we use a team meeting to provide students and a more extended voice in the program to think about strategizing and planning about priorities for moving forward. So I mentioned we currently run this program on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we've currently added a Friday option for students who would like to provide, participate in team meetings to provide feedback and plan the next week, right? And so that's a, a different level of participation there um, in restorative youth sports. So that's a, a quick kind of broad overview. I think there's probably several areas we can talk further about, um, but I hope that was helpful in, um, giving you a picture of what restorative justice pedagogy might look like in our, our field. Thank you very much, Michael. Very engaging. And I know everyone in this room has got a lot of questions, I'm sure. I know I do. I, I don't want to start though. So does anyone want to start with a question? Well, can I Come start on? with a comment? Because comments, I will great. say Dr. Hill was um, questions, issues, or very nice and had an opportunity to meet with some of my seniors who are now student teaching. Right. And gave a, 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 some some baby steps to pedagogy for mm -hmm. restorative practices. But mm -hmm. I wanted to let you know that when we were working at a local high school in our health education class, that was definitely something we were able to implement. Oh. The students were very confident and, and very mm -hmm. uh, they had a lot of good feedback. And we ended every class; it was our closure, and yeah. they really huh. enjoyed that because some of the topics in health education. Um, oh, yeah. really do afford a, mm -hmm. a nice relationship with what the premises are of restorative justice and some of the topics and can get yeah. a little heavy if you will and yeah. uh, it was just really nice to have a safe sure. space mm -hmm. and to create that in health education yeah i'm so glad to hear that yeah that was yeah. really cool so i guess it does lend to a question then because i know with your presentation you do talk a lot about physical education but i do think with the mm -hmm. topics of health education looking at the national standards and of course our state standards. I yeah. mean, do you feel that um, 
in the research? I mean, are you seeing uh, anything about health education? Because a lot of the topics when it comes to how we are getting students to um, talk about conflict resolution and all the skills-based health education pieces that we're, you know, yeah. starting to develop in health education at mm -hmm. secondary levels. I mean, yeah. To me, I feel like it's it was a very good connect for my students, but are yeah. you seeing that more in the literature yourself? I have not. I don't think I have at all in the literature. If, if you come across it, please send it my way. <laughs> I have uh, partnered with a local nonprofit who who focuses on health education to do to do some kind of piloting of sample restorative practice in health. Um, and one reason is so think about one of the issues in health is uh, healthy relationships so like kind of dating relationships and things like that mm -hmm. and so it seems like restorative practices is a way to get students to think about relationships and meet them where they're at because we as adults kind of telling them it it just doesn't work because they have a totally different context and different kind of relational strategies than we even understand like we, i didn't we didn't date on social media and they do so um the circle opens up space to have those types of conversations but i am not familiar with any literature on it so far interestingly enough from new zealand it is not the physical education curriculum it's the health and physical education curriculum it's hpe mm -hmm. and so uh topics like mental health relationship building sexuality are all part of the K through 12 or in New Zealand year one through 13 health and physical education curriculum mm -hmm. and ironically in North Carolina uh, we have health education at the middle school and the high school required but not at the elementary level mm -hmm. and to me that is amazing mm -hmm. there are standards there, there are, are standards. There are standards, Kate. However, uh, but the question is implementation. Are the teachers is... implementing health education with physical education at yeah. the elementary school? And it is highly unlikely it is. Well, you know, speaking from my own experience, I'm K-12 certified mm -hmm. health education and physical mm -hmm. education in the state. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to who, and this is earlier in my career, so we're talking 15 plus mm -hmm. years ago, classroom teachers were responsible mm -hmm. for teaching health education. And then with the uh, increased pressures of testing, I did hear messages over time saying, well, we'll teach health, but it'll be after standardized testing time. And mm -hmm. they kind of compressed it to being after what we call here in this North Carolina EOGs, end of grade testing. And there you go. So you have health education squeezed in the last two to three weeks mm -hmm. of the school year where mm -hmm. we know conflict resolution, healthy relationships, how critical that you do think about. And why I love the idea of, of getting more schools involved is when I tried to pitch this to my colleagues who are teaching general education, mm -hmm. think about your classroom management issues. Mm -hmm. Doesn't yeah. usually deal with who's not getting along with who. And yeah. wouldn't it be great if we could be proactive in the process mm -hmm. and, and get Everyone understand there's going to be conflict. Mm -hmm. You're, you're not going to live in your own bubble, but let's learn how to do this in a constructive way early so that, you know, when we get through that yeah. grades, we can focus on different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, it has to start the elementary level. Yes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, other questions, folks? I know I've got a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get you started. Well, I. I can sort of piggyback off that. So I brought my little book because I came from a school where I was trained. And um, before coming to the university. And so when you were talking about 
um, sort of, you didn't use this word, but I understood this to be in there, this sort of fidelity of mm -hmm. yeah. implementation, right? Yeah. And fidelity is one of those words that I, I like and I don't like. So we'll go with that for a minute, um, especially in education. But anyway, um, you know, this was something that um, I latched onto and other people did not. And so it really was that, that resistance of it's not my thing, it's not how I do things, it's not how I see things. Um, that I found really fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. So when you got mentioned also about how um, that physical education and sports could be the focus spot, right, for mm -hmm. these this entry level or bottom level of restorative practice, mm -hmm. my gut response ends up being, no, it really should be that for all of us. Mm -hmm. Because if what we can do in, in the, the two articles that you had us read, we're talking about these dramatic decrease, right, in mm -hmm. discipline and these referrals and um, racial discipline issues. So now what become in my head, the curriculum person in me says, mm -hmm. okay, so now I have kids who are in my room mm -hmm. and want to be in my room and are ready to learn. Mm -hmm. Now what do I do with them? Because they've, I, we may or may not be equipped to do that. And so mm -hmm. it, I feel like there's this piece that says, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I taught high school mathematics to middle grades kids, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I understood the pressure of the test mm -hmm. in a very clear way. Mm -hmm. And I still think I had time mm -hmm. to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I had, yeah. I see more wasted you time. Really did hit time. I absolutely yeah. had time. And so I think core people like to say, that we don't have time, yeah. but boy, they wasting some time like nobody's yeah. business. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so if we could get behaviors to this beautiful humanistic place, yeah. right? Now I have the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because I put this structure in place. Like yeah. I so my questions for you are more around mm -hmm. what Matt, what now? Is there any research out there that's looking at restorative practice gave us mm -hmm. this new um, playing field mm -hmm. in which now we're going to start dropping what other pedagogies mm -hmm. are we going to drop collaborative learning in now that we have this method yeah. of keeping what's going on in class yeah. right I'm, I'm not saying this correctly but, but you see what i'm saying right. it's going it would open up it's like a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. it yeah. is right yeah. and it would it would open up the space yeah. to do more work inside yes. collaborative inside sure. tpsr yeah. inside mm -hmm. um you know storytelling which i'm not gonna let go for a while no, no. um <laughs> you know this that as a you know as a math person i see where this benefits us mm -hmm. I mean, I'd just say a couple of things quickly because that's that's one I'll be chewing on for days. I think that's good. a really good we question. We can have coffee um, and talk yeah. more. Okay, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be happy to. Yeah. yeah. Um, it. So the the circle process can be used to teach. Yeah. I, I mean, it can be just to teach yeah. math or reading. Or I mean, I've I've observed teachers it. do it, and they're not doing it to build relationships. They're doing it to teach a lesson, yeah. right? So that could be an interest in space to think about like what does that look like um the other thing is if you particularly the restorative justice side of thing there there has to be a piece of this that allows students a chance to interrogate 
the systems that they exist in and why they are the way they are. And if what's been happening with school suspension is wrong and we somehow sort that out and now the classes are more just, that those students would be able to think about and acknowledge that that was wrong and that there was harm caused by that and that harm still exists today, right? Because if a, if a student, if, if African-American students uh, are being suspended at rates that are not just, which all the data says there are, then that's causing harm to those whole communities. And fixing it doesn't make all that harm go away. That harm is very present. And so that might be somebody's big brother who's in your math class. And thankfully their issue was dealt with, but what about big brother? How can that student think about and reflect on that? So restorative practice in schools, I don't think has gotten to that point. You know, so that would be one yeah. area I'd be interested in thinking about. Yeah. And then now, indigenous pedagogies, the term uh, generational trauma was brought up relative yes. to First Nations and African Americans. Yeah. And so, I mean, that is a big picture. Yeah. We're not yeah. getting close to dealing with any of that. Yeah. And so, so reparation. <laughs> I was just talking with a, a school principal yesterday, and any time, I talk about restorative practice around a school principal, they talk about trauma, trauma-informed practice. And they, they see that as a need and a connection to be made. And one, one issue that I've thought about with, as it relates to trauma is <clears throat> when students are, I'm just gonna use the term acting out to explain any a whole bunch of behaviors that students might exhibit. And so I've, I view those behaviors as wrong, things they shouldn't be doing, but it's like, well, when you think about trauma and restorative, like you start to think about maybe that's a developmentally appropriate response, giving the situation that they've experienced. So maybe they're not just acting out, right? Maybe this is how this totally makes sense, their behavior. And so how can we start to understand them and see them that way? Because then that changes the whole dynamic, right? In terms of how do we punish that student? When it's like, no, no, this is very appropriate for what they've been through, for them to react in these ways that are acting out. It's normal, well, not normal, but it's, yeah. Right, and we still- need to yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we still need to fix it, right? We still need to help them overcome those challenges, but you reach different solutions and it's much harder to think about kicking a kid out of school or putting them in ISS where they just sit and stare at a wall for hours upon hours, right? So you, you think about different solutions. Sorry, before we move on, can we just talk about what does fidelity look like just to give people an idea mm -hmm. in restorative practice? Because you mentioned it and then Jennifer brought it up. Yeah. So, I know that's very difficult. I'm not asking for a copyable question. Yeah. To answer, but <laughs> could you just respond to that a little bit? Yeah, it, that, it's a really good question. So one piece of it could be, can you see restorative practices taking place? Like mm -hmm. if, if a school is doing restorative practice, you should be able to see it, right? I should be able to show up and see a circle or see. So in what ways do you see it happening? is fidelity, right? Um, I think fidelity means that the teacher is reflecting on their practice in, in, in terms of relationships and in terms of conflicts and harms would be one thing. I think another thing would be how are um, schools, teachers, et cetera, addressing harms that occur, 
right? So that could be an issue. And then I'd think about how are, uh, how is this communicated to constituents, to communities, parents, et cetera, um, around restorative practice? Those are a few things, but that, I mean, that's a question that, that I need to think more about and I'd be interested to hear from other, uh, other practitioners and researchers as well. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Other questions, folks? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> your previous uh, study, you discussed using restored practice in uh, TPSR model-based practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just thinking, uh, will the restored practice be applicable in other model-based practice? Mm -hmm. And also, uh, as a teacher or as a coach, when I implement restored practice, how can I use it in a in an effective way because maybe for teacher for coach there are so many conflicts happens in, in the activity or in the training or in the in class so how can you make a decision uh, like uh, are you going to uh, uh, to select the topic of restorative practice based on the conflicts that happens in the class or you just want to be prepared like a pro, uh, proactive mm -hmm. topic on that so how uh, like plan a plan b yeah uh, how can you yeah <laughs> sorry yeah i mean i think it, it has to proactive has to be the thing you start with and you build on so you're able to uh, solve problems because of the relationships you've built to start with and so i'd never approach uh, a group of students with the idea that you all are causing conflict, so we're going to do restorative practice. I'd approach it. We, I want to build a relationship with you and understand how we can work together. Um, and that proactive part then, then creates the space for you to address the address and acknowledge the conflicts. Um, another just tan practical way is this idea of affective statements. And so speaking to how situations make you feel as a as a human and how it might make other people feel and so when uh students might be causing harm to say you know, that really frustrates me um that makes me upset um that causes harm to other students and so what you're doing is to ask them to think about how does your actions impact other people and how does it make them feel and so that's just a small way to kind of start with that affective domain and move down that road toward uh community or um repairing harm for models I, I think you just have to think about what the um what's the values and are you truly committed to inclusion um fundamentally and so i would think so let's say a, a, a sport team like a basketball team wants to do restorative practice so you absolutely can but how are you going to deal with these issues of equity and inclusion in a competitive kind of environment right so i do know um i said basketball i've met and had some conversations with a coach out of st louis um who who does restorative practices he's a trainer of restorative practice um has national recognition for it they just won the state championship he's coached he there's four active nba players that played for him in high school um there's a player at duke right now that played for him in high school but he's coming from the area around ferguson missouri where you saw the right you know and he's dealing with trauma he's dealing with all these issues so it can work in those settings but it's that commitment to the to the values that that becomes important. Thanks. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, please. Yeah. I had a chance to talk with 
uh, elementary school teachers back in South Korea about one of the innovative pedagogical practice. Yeah. And their opinions was like, we know it is good and we know it will help to improve our practice, pedagogical practice, but still we have too many things on our plate. Mm -hmm. We have to teach and we have to manage our classroom and we have other duties as teacher. And I think teachers will know restorative practice is good for building positive relationship with teacher and students and etc. But may at some point traditional punishment can be easier for them to do so. So I think um, strong, much stronger relationship interrelationship among schools, teachers, and universities are needed mm -hmm. to yes. get them involved continuously in restorative yeah. practice. So what kind of support do you think university should provide with teachers? Yeah, um, so that's a really good question. When you first started talking about the teachers feeling like they don't have the space to really do this, it made me think about it, it goes back to the values piece, like what is it we're supposed to be doing? And when I started working with this high school, um, it, it took us a while to start getting things going well and we weren't really doing anything, any real teaching, and uh, it just took a while. And uh, one of the students said, when are we gonna start doing the work? And I remember looking at the students saying, this is the work, right? We are here to build relationships. And if that means it's ugly and it's messy for three months, and that's just the way it is. Like, this is the work. This is what we're here to do. Now, we're doing the work now that he, that he was thinking about. Um, but so part of it is that, to, to reframe teaching to say, this is our core responsibility to build relationships and provide these skills. And if I happen to teach math, I can do that through math, or I can do that through science, or whatever my area is. So that's one. The more difficult process is, um, how do we support teachers as universities? And um, it seems to be with this and other models, there needs to be a continual process of engagement to support teachers. Like they need continual support. Um, and so thinking about mechanisms that would value that uh, is, is really important. And I think that's true for school districts too. I mean, school districts need to think about how do we create space for teachers to engage in these things in a deep, reflective way. A one-day workshop doesn't, just doesn't do it. You know, there are some superstars who can go to the one day workshop and just be inspired to make real change. But um, we, we just need to think about how do we do continual learning to support uh, teacher development? Yeah. Yeah, and we've talked about what we'd say is continuing professional development. Yeah. And that's what you've just defined, I think. Yeah. And it requires support, support, support. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, other questions, folks? Great question, thanks. Yeah, Michael, um, I did a bit of student voice work, as I've told you before, back yeah. in Ireland, very, very basic stuff. Um, and I'll preface this with the most difficult thing I ever had to do as a teacher was look a student in the eye and tell them I was wrong uh, and have to make a phone call to their parents. Not, not this didn't happen every day, but I've had, to make, <laughs> I've had to make conversations to parents and say, look, something happened that I missed or that I, that I didn't handle properly mm. and I was wrong. Mm. Uh, I think that's a very important thing as we talk a lot here about the impact this has on students when it's done right and it's fidelity and stuff like that. And from my work, what we found was the hardest people to change, and you've talked about this, Jennifer, is the teachers themselves. 
Uh, and some people are willing to do this. Uh, others maybe not so much and maybe hide behind that, uh, that invisible wall of uh, high stakes accountability and standardization and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I, what this kind of says to me then is, and I, I, with my own work, I would have looked at these ladders of, uh, or steps and triangles and stuff like that. And I found myself that the, you know, it was, I, I rarely even my own work while I was a teacher was got past the first phase. And I can, I, I know what you said out here, most of the work here needs to be done in developing positive relationships mm -hmm. uh, through social and emotional learning, mm -hmm. both within PE as the subject, but not in PE alone across the school itself. Mm -hmm. um, but it still leaves me wondering, what is it about physical education that makes it a particularly uh, unique subject to do this kind of work in? Mm -hmm. uh, and what is it that we can teach other subjects I suppose, in the way we do things, in the way we, we, we have, and you're talking about, you know, designing curriculum, mm -hmm. centering around the, the, the restorative practices, and I, I think it's a great idea. Mm -hmm. But what is it that we can, what is it we're doing in physical education, I guess, when we think of the most basic things right now, what is it that I can do tomorrow in my class, mm -hmm. I suppose, with regard to this and regard to developing these relationships? Uh, that can tr transfer, I guess, to other subjects or across the school. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the tomorrow, so what could you do tomorrow? I would say you could, you could have a circle and ask, say, I want to hear, I want, I'm interested to hear from every student who's willing to share how things are going for you, right? And give them that opportunity and, and see what you get. And a lot of time you'll be surprised. Um, I know I've worked with uh, the work I've done. I've had teachers say, gosh, that student, they'll never talk to you in a circle. Never. Like, and then it's like, all right, come by and see. You know, they, they will engage and they will share. So that's something that you can start, you can try, and it can be replicated. Um, and it's an easy enough strategy. Um, what is it about physical education? Um, so I think the movement piece is important here. Uh, it, I'm working at a school where it's, you know, there's immigrant populations. And so some people might struggle with their English communication skills. And so I think that movement piece where you can relate to one another, um, you can kind of understand people beyond just the way you encounter them in a hallway or in a classroom in a physical education context. So I think that matters. And, yeah. and again, I'm probably being a bit transcendental here, so yeah. but does that relate to your idea of silent voices? or the idea of that movement is almost the language of expression or that the communal language of bringing people together in the, in these types, in these, in these spaces. Yes. Yeah, it, it does. And the other piece about silence as a voice is, um, so it's almost that idea of, um, I'm, I'm losing the word here, but in, um, kind of a silent protest type thing almost. And so sometimes we have a question, um, that we have and if you choose not to speak, you still hold the time. And so if I, pass, if I go around the circle with a question and you say, I don't wanna say anything, you have 30 seconds to just wait and let's listen to your silence because that's saying something, right? And so that's a type of a thing too. What are the quiet voices saying? They're thinking things, they have things that opinions that matter, right? So um, there's a few th things going on with that. 
I'm just wondering then, because I know I've worked on a lot of data from Ben from New Zealand, and I've been, I suppose, uh, impressed, I guess is the word, I won't say blown away, but impressed anyway, with the level of uh, holistic um, philosophy, I suppose, yeah, of the yeah. teachers in New Zealand. Sure. That this is just simply part and parcel of what they do. Yeah. And it's part and parcel, I guess, of maybe the, and Ben, you can explain mm -hmm. it maybe better than I can, of the culture or just the way they teach and the way they interact with their students. Yeah. I'm just wondering when you look at the uh, New Zealand paradigm, which you've spent, you said you've spent a bit of time looking at mm -hmm. the American paradigm. What, what, are the, what, what is it that uh, a place like New Zealand is doing well that a place like the US needs to do better? Um, probably, I'd say inviting community perspectives in a little bit. And so what I might mean by that is um, restorative practices might ask you to give up a little bit of control in that authoritative way, right? So I was uh, talking to a school principal in New Zealand and um, there was this, I guess this kid faked like he was gonna jump in front of the train, just joking, you know, and um, they worked with the train conductor to join the circle and the train conductor got to have feedback on what the punishment should be, right? Because a student had to understand that this is fearful for this person and this impacts him in these certain ways, right? So to think about community having a pro input process in schools would be like that would be challenging for in the United States in most spaces that I'm aware of. Um, so, you know, that's one challenge and there might be more um, high stakes disciplinary issues that occur routinely in our schools. You know, nobody's bringing a gun to school in New Zealand. Um, so those types of things put pressure on like, let's get, you know, the school suspension issue. Like if somebody might be at risk for behaving in that way or really causing a, a harm, it's just, let's remove them from that environment. That type of thing might play a role. Like I know from my experience, I've said time and time again in the University of Limerick is that the teacher education program we had there Set, I, I always felt set us apart from general education programs where we always seemed to, there was this, there was this particular, I was almost an implicit focus uh, on the holistic development yeah. of the child through the subject. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'm going to step back now and just let you, Judy and Ben go at it. But I'm just wondering what is the differences then in relation to a teacher education program that allows teachers to be able to go into a classroom and say and go, this is how I'm going to approach it because this is the way I've been trained to and I've seen mm -hmm. uh, Judy uh, you know Judy's training teachers now or in teacher education now at the moment and we're this, this has been done particularly with uh, PE teachers generally I think but what I'm just wondering what uh, mm -hmm. what's internationally as such or what kind of subtle differences are happening in teacher education that allows these teachers to come out and look address these uh, and target these sort of uh, holistic practices I guess uh, or these uh, to, to develop these social and emotional competencies. Yeah, interesting question. I, I I don't know. That's a really interesting question. It might. I've always thought of uh, the induction process playing a major role for these teachers getting onboarded. But you know, I'm not sure the extent to which they're exposed to these strategies in their teacher ed programs. That would be really important to look at. And is there any kind of continuity between universities and then the the schools they might go teach in yeah yeah in new zealand there's the social critical curriculum 
and uh, just recently uh, Rod Fulpop and Jen Fassett from Kent State have written a book on that. So that might be a place to start. Mm. But I think historically we haven't done a very good job of that, Judy. I invited Dr. Hempel in my class. You know, I mean, right. it's just finding different ways and different creative things mm -hmm. that you know that is important for the students to be able to navigate what's going to really happen. I mean, the mm -hmm. content's important and having certain classroom management pieces are important, but we know oftentimes that I think our content, and I guess my brain kind of goes more to that health education. I think about when I used to teach health education with upper grades, some of those deep conversations came as a result of something happened in the health education class that really started that conversation in that trust building piece. And I think we all, all teachers of every content, that we have our content, but I do think sometimes with the ability of teamwork and group work, and it's, it's, it's a different structure that mm. we can afford to have that I think kind of cultivates the, the ability to, to be able to build trust. And I do think, and you know, now that we're getting into our research for schools and we're hearing different administrators even saying, no, I'm sorry, you can't work with our language arts teachers. It's too much on their plate, you know? And I, so there are those pressures that are real. And I think sometimes depending on how the teacher education programs equip their teachers or, you know, pre-service teachers to navigate all the different elements of being a teacher. It's not just going in and delivering mm -hmm. content. It's not just going in, quote unquote, teaching curriculum. It's teaching children. Mm -hmm. And how are we as teacher education programs equipping our students with, and of course for me, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I have my students watch the Rita Pearson TED Talk about building relationships <laughs> because it's about Thanks building those relationships. And she even talks about in that TED Talk about the time that she taught a, a, a math lesson wrong and going through mm -hmm. what you said, Donald, and those kids were like, you're on a roll. I mean, that, but that's that exchange, we but we didn't want to interrupt, but you're on a roll yeah. and you, you know, and, yeah. but it's, it's, and I guess where, um, and I'm still struggling because I think this is so important and I've been in the past couple of years reading about motivational climate a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It's a climate that we create in our classrooms. And I think if we're able to have more cooperative structures, so I think yeah. about any, you know, I think any content area should be able to do that. It should be a classroom community. I'm going to take another step beyond a family. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what we really should function as. And, uh, no. and, it, and, and it goes back to, right, and it goes back to how many teachers are teaching curriculum or how many teachers are teaching children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the pedagogy cuts across. It's content-free, and that's, I think, what you're talking about. I was just going to piggyback off that and say, and then we have to realize too, I think, or we have to pay attention to these places where, sorry, I just touched your water bottle. My bad. Um, here, here we are. No. Um, that we all, then we have to think about these places where um, discipline rates are high, right? These exclusionary rates are high, are not the places where teachers are coming out of teacher ed programs and working. These are the buildings that are 50 to 75% lateral entry. These mm -hmm. are the buildings that have people coming mm -hmm. in and out. Like they talked about the retention of the teachers and who mm -hmm. got moved where and all the, yeah. those places. And, and I don't mean it that way, but there are the places where the need is the greatest. They're not coming from us. Mm -hmm. They're coming from other, they're coming from outside of what we can do for them. And so how do we bridge that in, in at the same time? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
that's a whole nother, right. Yeah. right? I mean, that's a whole nother layer to yes. all of this because I would tell you that they're not teaching curriculum either, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, argument. that's the other problem, that's right? The other problem is yeah. that at best case, what we have are teachers who are teaching curriculum. Mm. <laughs> it becomes their primary focus. It becomes their primary focus. focus. And yeah. we can hope for that mm -hmm. in some places because yeah. it's not even that. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. Why do you want to talk about that? I mean, it's, that's interesting. I don't know uh, as much about the, those stats that that's about lateral entry. I, I happen to know some lateral entry teachers, um, at a couple of the schools I frequent, but um, it just, it, it makes me think about the punishment as the easy solution. Right. And so I go to a school and just my route that I go when I enter, every day I walk past the in-school suspension mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm just struck by, there is absolutely no opportunity for learning in that environment. And so we've decided that that's not, we've eliminated the need for them to learn. And so that structure is interesting to me because I think about how can restorative justice reshape that space? And I don't know, but it's like, you know, can they be reflecting on what happened? Can they be reflecting on how to um, address the situation? I don't know, but it seems like, and I, I spent some time in, in school suspension in middle school, so I know it was the same when I was there. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, and so I wonder, with what you're talking about, if te if a teacher's struggling, maybe their lateral entry and hadn't been prepared to deal with all these issues, and that becomes this easy out, you know, Absolutely. send them down the hall and um, ten school suspension. So that's where I think leadership around restorative yes. practice is critical. I know one of these articles spoke to that, yes. the, the school did. principal. Um, yeah. Like leadership is critical yeah. to um, making it clear that like in this school, this is the it way is, we address exactly. relationships and yes. harm. And if you need support, then we need to get that for you. Um, and we're back to that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Judy and I talk about yeah. administration all the time. Yeah, without a good principal, without that leadership, it's really hard to make any progress. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we, Eddie and myself did a bit of work with the, or gathered some data in a, a local yeah. school here that are, in, they've begun the process, mm -hmm. a very long and arduous process. Uh, but ultimately, we, we can see from the work you and what you talk about here, Mike, it's worthwhile mm -hmm. and it's necessary and it's critical. Mm -hmm. uh, they've begun that process and what they've found early on is things that like you've mentioned already with buy-in and fidelity. And one thing they brought up and you just kind of touched on here is that element of consequences. Uh, and I'm just wondering how you've observed that or how you've dealt in that where it still gets to a point where, you know, or, you know, you're trying to juggle a school's uh, behavioral procedures or behavioral code along with your own holistic approach, hoping to repair that harm and not let it get to that point. And I'm just wondering how how does it get to a point where, I suppose, what we found with our teachers was, was they were having these conversations. Students were then going to conferences with the principals, but then they were coming back into the classroom and repeating. Uh, mm -hmm. repeating the behavior and there didn't seem to be any uh, again it's very early days with this and fidelities you know they're still struggling with the buy-in and the fidelity i'm just wondering where then how, where do, how do we juggle that point where the quality of mercy is not strained and there are consequences mm -hmm. for students and what would those consequences maybe from your own experience what have they had to look like or where you've had to make maybe tough decisions mm. it, i mean one of the challenges i've had i haven't if there's a 
conflict that rises to a level of significance in the areas I've worked at, it's kind of out of my, it kind of goes to the school administration anyway, because I, um, I'm kind of a volunteer at the school. Uh, it, I think the, you want to have a system where there's a, a reflective process that's proximal to the harm that was caused. And so what I'm hearing from you and what I've seen, I've worked with a teacher on this in Los Angeles where, you know, something bad happens, you know, big, a fight happens and the kid goes to the principal and comes back 10 minutes later, it's all over, right? So um, I'm all for if you say we're not suspending kids anymore, that's just our value, but there has to be a consequence that's proximal to that. So that the fight that might've happened caused harm to the person that you were fighting, it caused harm to the teacher who had to deal with that, it caused harm to the community ethos that's been established. So what are you gonna do as a consequence to repair that harm? So the process has to get at that somehow. I know this is complicated, because a lot of these kids are gonna be like, screw you, I don't care about your harm, right? Right, so you, these proactive practices all have to be in place, it's not gonna be a silver bullet, but if you, if it's just a situation where you, you know, you conference with a student and there's no process that gets that repair and the harm, then you haven't had a restorative process. I mean, maybe that's the time where you want to give them some quiet time to say, why don't you go back and reflect on this? Here are the three questions you need to come to me with. What, what happened and why? What harm was caused? How do we make it right? And then we can get you back in that classroom, but I need you to go through that process. So um, that's that level of nuance I haven't been able to get uh, exposure to in restorative practice in, in the United States, but, um, you know, that, which is why I kind of alluded to the, the, necess the need to actually just maybe that, that, that will come eventually or that will look after yeah. itself provided you can get the, the very bottom tier of the basic fundamentals right at the right time. Yes. Uh, in the right way. Yes. Yes. So, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I have, a, a I was able to talk with, teachers from a school in Michigan, and they have a, they call it the Sky Squad. It's 11th and 12th graders who are trained on restorative practices. And if there is a conflict, it can be referred to the Sky Squad, any conflict. Um, and those students negotiate the outcome. Going through those questions I just mentioned, that outcome is then binding and the, it's presented to the administration. And so if, for example, they something really bad happened and they said, oh, you get, we, we decided detention and it's over, the administrator can say, that's just not proportional. That's not okay. But oftentimes what they found is they come up with just solutions. And a lot of times it deals with the harm that was caused, making it right instead of just punishing the student. So that would be, um, an example of a process that's possible and forces that student to reflect on what harm did it cause to that community and to those students in the school. Would you call that fair process, like what was referred to in the literature, or is that something different? It, a little bit different. I, it's a, a fair process, but the fair process piece is, a, is about decision making, about like rules or, you know, here's the kind of the sport we decided we're going to do for the sport education unit. Mm -hmm or, you know, those types of decision-making processes as well, yeah. yeah. And, and a step towards that group that you just talked about in Michigan is in New Zealand in the elementary schools that I was working in, they all had kids that were called peer mediators. Mm -hmm. And so the peer mediators would walk around the playground and they would help any conflicts that occurred <laughs> and help come to 
a uh, fair solution yeah. to that problem. Uh, and if it, and if it was a serious problem, then it would go up the, the food chain yeah. to the uh, teachers or administrators. So that seemed to be a step towards that. And it, yeah, and it's it's very developmentally appropriate too for younger kids. Like, hey, let's focus on solving the problem. And I think when you get to secondary schools, you can think about that transformation perspective. Exactly, like we want to solve the problem, mm -hmm. but we got to address the root of it mm -hmm. and make sure this isn't going to happen again in the first place, right? So, right. Yeah. yeah. I had one question from both papers, actually, uh, Mansfield and Gregory, which yep. will be available for folks who are listening to this podcast. Uh, it was about the student voice. So uh, I think uh, one of the papers referred to the fact that they had surveyed a bunch of uh, students and then they reported that students perceptions uh, and then they had referred to that that had some focus group interviews but they had not been published yet but they were working on publishing uh, that work i think that was mansfield and then gregory also talked about the value and the need for and to consult students so do you know of work that has been published with student voice from students' perspectives, interviewing or accessing student voice, and how how that was done. Yeah, uh, I think only I think only books, not um, journal articles that I know of. Now, now one is re one is a, in fact a dissertation. Can you but, send us? Uh, yeah, Martha. I'll, I'll put it up on our website. Yep, yep. Uh, Martha Brown is the author. So, so the dissertation, you know, is on ProQuest as, as usual, and then they've uh, written a book out of it. It's quite interesting and rich with, yep, rich with um, student voice. And uh, Nancy Reisenberg is another one who's done uh, a book and just has a bunch of rich descriptions of that process in, in her work. Um, so those would be the two. There's one that's actually sitting on my desk that uh, I've skimmed it enough to know that that's there. It's called, um, it has to do with urban settings and youth sort of justice. I haven't quite um, done the reading yet though, so yeah. Thanks, Michael. I mean, I, mean, I think that's sort of an area that you'll probably be working on out at uh, Dudley High School, at your high school. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. Um, we are working on that and, and interest in methodological uh, thing for research is um, so the circle as a data collection tool um, which we I've struggled with that because it's a space you want to be careful about um, but the, the students know we're interested in doing research to learn about this practice and um, they have voluntary participation and so we do interview circles um, and we use our a phone as a talking piece with a, a recording app and so for students who speak quietly the microphone is always in front of you because mm -hmm. that's the talking piece, mm -hmm. right? And it's been quite interesting for focus groups because it gives them the opportunity to build off each other's conversations as we go around. Yeah. Um, so that's been a really interesting uh, process that we're going mm -hmm. through and, Great. you know, look forward to trying to make some meaning out of that. For sure. Right. Good work. Yeah. Look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions, folks? I know, uh, you know, we don't have to continue if uh, we're sort of at, at a point, but that's uh, uh, how we sort of go with the flow here, don't we? That's um, good. I do just, I am interested as well too, and I am contradicting myself here because I'm fully, <laughs> I'm just being devil's advocate, I suppose, yeah. in my own head is that 
when I try to do this kind of work, the immediate kickback I get, like you talked about, is we want to just be active. You know, we want to roll out the ties and we want to play, which is, you know, generally our general, I suppose, traditional or historical experiences of physical education, the multi-activity model and such as well, too. And I'm just wondering how, like, you know, uh, even I know with that, some of your programs and son's been doing the Taekwondo and mm-hmm. how does that, uh, how do you how does that look when you try to balance like we still have a commitment here to movement you know uh, and for students to experience movement mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I think that that's the, the active nature of physical education still has to be uh, honored so to speak yeah uh, and I just want, I wonder like how that plays out in terms of uh, some of the programs you've done I know you've I mean I mean no more than any other classes or subjects there's some days where you just throw it out the window and you 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 you'd work with what happens in front of you and you deal yeah. particularly in these types of uh not necessarily hostile is right isn't the right word but uh, you know environments where there is going to be conflict or conflict arises yeah yeah um so i've been fortunate that i'm doing high school ninth grade and the physical education they're on block schedule so they have four classes in a day and my class that I have them, they're generally 90 minutes, but I think the time I'm there, it's actually like 100 minutes or something, 100 something. So it's a ton of time. I mean, we the class starts at 2.09 and ends at 3.40 on some days and 3.45 on some days. And they go to the locker room and kind of drag their feet a little bit, so we lose some time. But um, that's a lot of time. Yeah. So you can have a really long circle mm-hmm. and a really good long mm-hmm. physical activity lesson <laughs> in that time. So that's been a victory. Now, the one thing I do, I always tell people, and it gets attention when I'm talking to kind of community folks, is whatever your experience is in that physical education class, that's 25% of their academic time that day. So if it's, if, if, if it's bullying going on, that's 25% of their day that they had that experience. If it's a quality physical activity experience, that's 25% was quality physical activity, this quality relationship. So whatever it is, that physical education is very important to that school. Um, but I haven't quite, um, I'm aware that I think teachers who are on different schedules where they might have 45 minute classes that that circle becomes more of a challenge to how do you get them in the locker room, circle process and physical activity, yeah. you know, becomes I, more of a I think a lot of the critiques might yeah. come from people yeah. th- that think, well, why that their pedometer here is not measuring this or yeah. their GPS thing is saying this and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, this is what the, de- you know, and so I, I just, yeah. I'm just trying to think of how you make a rational argument for these, this type of pedagogy yeah. embedded within a fully functioning or quality physical education yeah. program. Now, one one uh, uh, one way I have approached that. So I'm committed philosophically to community engagement, and that's kind of an ethical approach to thinking about meeting the needs of communities. Um, and so, one question I'd have is, uh, what are the needs of this school? Um, if it's a school that you know, isn't having conflict problems very much, and you got that under control, uh, maybe a physical activity intensive focus is really appropriate. But if you're a school who's suspending uh, 30% of the students on a given year, right, and you got kids who are chronically absent all the time, 
then there's a need to focus on relationships. And this is the space where we need to do that, right? So that's kind of an argument that I also would focus on is like, there's a real need to address this. And if this is in the state curriculum standards, we need to take that seriously and think about how is that being implemented to help these communities overcome those challenges. Yeah, yeah, a need for relationships and need for standards, you know, four and five. Yeah. The, the other point I'd like to make is that uh, all tonight we've been talking about this pedagogy of restorative justice and restorative practice. Mm -hmm. And so for the teacher in the school, as I think Kunyan mentioned, it's very difficult with the crowded curriculum. And I know that when we were doing cooperative learning, one of the, and we're trying to do group processing, which is very, I think, similar, and you and I need to talk about the similarities and differences of it. Yeah. Uh, we would start the class with a brief and then end the class with a group processing. But when we've got 30 minutes in an elementary, average elementary yeah. school class, the teachers really struggled with allocating, you know, even five minutes for this. Yeah. But when they did, they, they and the kids <laughs> talked about how beneficial it was. So. Judy, do you want to make comments? I, I think back to some of my experiences and, you know. The elementary level. Yeah, at the elementary level and having classes for 30 minutes. Right. You, know, and you can, you just have Revolving to. Door. Right. And I think, you know, you do, as the practitioner, have to have this idea of what's important for your students. What do mm -hmm. your students need? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. is it the skills from standard one of shape or is yeah. it more four and five yep. based on what yep. the, the overall feel and the mm -hmm. pulse of the, the, your situation? But I just think about one thing that I did, and I'm sure I got it from a conference and I know other teachers do it as well, but I had a space was, it was called the repair shop and it was mm -hmm. the basis of conflict, conflict resolution. I had to you know, teach the kids how to do this. And, um, but I think what was really neat about it, so very similar to how the kids can learn to self-regulate, I think kids also function better when they know they're in a safe space where the teacher is going to be fair. Mm -hmm. So if you mm -hmm. really think about some school culture, so what mm -hmm. I think about this and in, in, in what we've read and seeing different places and knowing, you know, different places where you're starting to branch out with your, your uh, research, I just wonder you know, if there could be some sort of parallel study to define the school culture mm. and the school values and norms and, and what type mm. of space is created. Because if there are certain spaces that are more, so I think about like your, your point of what's going on in New Zealand versus U.S., what are the school cultures? How do you define those? Yeah. What is it about, you know, and, the, and we do know an administrator is pivotal for this. But in some spaces, is it just easier to cultivate this culture that may be already there because we have this general understanding and this is what I value coming into this administrative role being at the school? Or is it where other uh, systems are put in place that this is how I have to or what we believe or we've led to? And I started thinking back, uh, you know, my undergraduate career started way back when. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. what did I learn? What was the, what was the discipline method that was I try to think there was a book, assertive discipline was maybe one of them. And there's yeah. different, right? You know, but there's different things. And, um, and I'm, positive I'm, behavior yeah. was, was becoming yeah. the thing yeah. when you and, and I got I'm started. I'm thinking about right, how right here. Yeah. 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 But it yeah. wasn't, we called it something else yeah. back then. It was just. But you look at how the justice within work. that structure yes. that was, we were indoctrinated into that as early educators. And now, now we're the ones making the policy. Well, ideally we'd be right. making policy, but we're mm -hmm. making some decisions, site-based decisions as administrators, but based on what, what we learned way back when. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So I think about what can happen with restorative practices, and mm -hmm. I think it's going to take time to show that things work. So folks who are in those administrative roles, if they had their undergraduate career start 30 plus years ago, mm -hmm. right? Let's think about this. Yeah. This is what constructs yeah. their knowledge and what they mm -hmm. feel should be quote unquote just and right. And this is how I learned it. Yeah, that's a great point. Very good point. That was my favorite quote from the articles was when he said, it's clear we've had prisons for 400 years and we see how that's working. Why can't we give restorative practices yeah. 100 years before right. we decide if it's going to work or not? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. Yeah. I mean, I and, and about all of the things that we've been talking about, that's what I'm finding most interesting about this course, right, is that all of what we've talked about so far um, is is battling what um, Keith Sawyer would call instructionalism mm -hmm. and instructionalism yes. is all of those things that we think about in mm -hmm. traditional teaching mm -hmm. right and everything we've talked about is come in this course is the opposite of that mm -hmm. and combating that and how do we put this now mm -hmm. into the hands of practitioners mm -hmm. so that always ends up being my last question which is mm -hmm. what have you done in your work mm -hmm. aside from the physical work that yeah. you do mm -hmm. that it has gone out into the world in a practitioner form as opposed to a scholarly form yeah yeah mm -hmm. so that's yeah well two things and I know you said aside from the work but one yes. of the things that I'm thinking about is physical education has we have a lot of amazing ideas and models and practices that you come and you look you're like this is the most dynamic school thing there ever is and then you go into a school and you're like where is all that stuff that they have <laughs> that we talk about like what's yeah. happening and so one of my goals mm -hmm. is to say you know the ideas are here but if you, you we can go down the road and look at it i can show it to you right so to have that kind of credibility and that example um, as a way to help move it forward. But um, I also focus quite a bit on professional development um, in disseminating this in that fashion as well um, to teachers in user-friendly formats. And I didn't bring one today, but I'm happy to provide, and Judy has copies. I have a, yeah. a handbook that's right. geared for practitioners, mm -hmm. teachers, so that they can kind of access these ideas. Canvas or oh yeah, absolutely. And, and It'll be a PDF, yeah. The, uh, the podcast can have access. Yeah, exactly. And I can provide hard copies if you, you want in addition them. to that. So I'm happy to That'd do that. So, um, so yeah, trying to yeah. find pathways to disseminate this work um, where it'll work. And right now I, I talked to a school principal yesterday who comes from a counseling background and is he knows about this stuff. And so what I'm trying to find is like a partner at that level, right? Because then it's like, okay, how can we work together to work with your teachers to, to do this work? Um, and a final piece to that is to make sure that I disrupt the notion that the, that I'm the expert on this, right? So I bring something to the table in terms of thinking about these ideas, but like really the expert has to be you as a teacher mm -hmm. like i need you to like just think about the ideas but take them and implement it in your way that's going to give me that aha moment like wow i didn't <laughs> i didn't think about it i didn't way. know that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. too true very true transform it to being right. you know, real yes. yep yeah and that's what we noticed with some of the stuff in new zealand you know like mm -hmm. uh, any any other questions i know we're We've had a very good session on the question of culture.
Um, <laughs> and I know you what you mentioned the, the, the being born out of indigenous yeah. uh, in, in, in indigenous uh, context and yeah. stuff. Um, and you might be able to help me as well too, but son who's been doing this Taekwondo unit in the, in the school, um, it, it appears that uh, Taekwondo is, 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 was, it was the type of activity or the movements and practices and skills that are in that will seem to be a perfect fit for the type of environment that the students, the world they lived in, so to speak, where the, but, there was all, but, these, but also this kind of idea of discipline uh, in movement as well too mm -hmm. and stuff seem to be a perfect fit and I'm just wondering and son's the person to ask really I guess you know, I wish he was mm -hmm. here but what was there yeah. and Sun Yin might be able to explain as well too is there something about the Taekwondo as an activity that also espoused a sense of respect I guess or that a lot of the values we talk about that we want to teach through restorative practices were also being taught through this uh, uh, this cultural activity mm -hmm. yeah so I think uh, my observation has been it's it's novel but interesting to the students. Mm -hmm. So they they've never done it before, but it's not like so weird they're dismissive of it. So I think that helps. They're kind of like, huh, this is interesting. But the uh, the way he presents it and the way I understand it generally is uh, respect for a person is at the core of Taekwondo, mm -hmm. right? And um, he's would you agree? Yeah, and he's very good at, Young Sun's very good at kind of bringing that to the surface mm -hmm. and, and kind of reflecting on it. And so then it's just very simpatico with restorative practice. Mm -hmm. And so that's been really important. And sometimes I'm interested to think about other sports. Like I, yeah, I played basketball, so I always go to basketball as an example. But that has some kind of cultural relevance already to kids. And like when you're doing it, you're uh, – you're just competing with ideas they may have about the sport that may or may not align with um, what what you're trying and to. I just teach. I just yeah. wonder why these values don't uh, manifest themselves in other types of move activities or types of movements as well. Right, too. it's just they should. You know right. what I mean? Or we, we should, or whatever the way we present them, possibly should mm. as well That's too. Really you good. Know? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that's something I'd love to learn more about from people who think about that. I mean, there's people who think about that a lot, somebody like Adam Berg, perhaps, in our yeah. department. That, yes, because, like, um, you know, we see studies with kickboxing or yeah. uh, with, with just boxing or something mm -hmm. like that, and then they, they manage to, students learn uh, to be, you know, to manage themselves and the yeah. cognitive regulation and all these types of things, and, yeah. you know, that this is born out of the activity, but that in turn then kind of gets the ball, the, 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 the ball rolling on the actual practices then that you're doing face to face and yeah. interacting with on a daily basis yeah. yeah yeah so great and a lot of great coaches or teachers like son is yeah do it distill that with their players you know think of great coaches that we've had or ones that you see in the media they're not running up and down the sideline yelling at the players but they have mutual respect for each other yeah. and that's in any code or in any movement experience that's at a high level, I think. Yeah. Um, it's okay, I'm going to uh, pull the pin right now. And what I'm <laughs> going to say is, Michael, thank you um, for opening up the space, uh, referring to the pedagogy of restorative practice and, rest and restorative justice. And I'd like to say kia which in Māori means thank you. Kia ora. Kia ora, mate. 
and tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa.